impeached? Some of you history fanatics will know the answer. There have only been two that have been impeached. The first was Andrew Johnson for removing another official before he was technically able to. Uh, And then the second was Bill Clinton for perjury, lying under oath, and obstruction of justice, particularly those issues surrounding uh, his... uh, Uh, the affair there. Both were eventually acquitted. That is, they were found not guilty. But uh, nevertheless, the House of Representatives, as they considered to impeach these presidents, you know, they leveled charges against these presidents for high crimes and misdemeanors. High crimes and misdemeanors. So in other words, they're indicting, the government there is indicting these presidents that they had impeached once again both were acquitted and found not guilty in our passage today the people of israel bring charges believe it or not against god finding him guilty and they then move to replace him for an earthly king if you have your bibles please turn with me to the book of first samuel chapter 8 1 Samuel chapter 8, it can be found on page 230 there in your black Bibles if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. Now I say that that the Israelites bring charges against God and find him guilty. When I say that, it's more of an implication. It's it's kind of everywhere in the passage, uh, but not specifically stated. But we know that Israel had done that in the past, specifically brought charges against God. And they, at least in the courts of their own minds, have found him guilty. A little bit of background. The book of 1 Samuel is named after its first main character, that is Samuel. He is the king maker. Eventually, he's going to anoint the first king, that is King Saul, over Israel. And then he goes on to anoint the second king, that is King David, over Israel. And the book addresses Israel's major transition from a nation ruled by God, ruled by the Lord, to then becoming a nation ruled by a king. So in terms of Uh, the Bible story of redemption here. This is a really pivotal chapter. They're going to get their first king. To some of you, maybe one of you, uh, the sound of political transition sounds so exhilarating. But, sad to say, uh, we are not here to talk about politics. We are not here to talk about the intricacies of government structures. What 1 Samuel 8 speaks about and shows is that God's people's hearts have wandered. God's people's hearts have wandered. But of course, God in his covenant faithfulness will never abandon them. It's kind of like the big picture thing that we see. God's people's hearts have wandered, as we can identify with that. But in God's covenant faithfulness, he never abandons them. Uh, I don't really have any points. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage. It's not regularly what I do, but uh, this morning it is what we're going to do. Uh, so just kind of jot down notes uh, as we're kind of walking walking along the passage here. For those of you who are visiting with us and you were not here with us for uh, last week, we were in chapter 7, and it focused on a very good time in the life of Israel. Uh, see, they had sinned against God. They had given themselves to idolatry, but as we saw in First, uh, in first Samuel chapter 7, they were moved to great sorrow. They repent of their sins, that is, they turn away from their idols and sin, and then they work towards worshiping God. And so in chapter 7, we see very much so the climax of the chapter is them worshiping God, crying out to their leader in Samuel, the prophet and priest, their leader, to offer up 
prayers for them, to intercede for them. And Samuel gives an offering, a burnt sacrifice in display of the fact that they are guilty before God and they do desire reconciliation. It's a good time in the life of Israel. But if you're familiar with the biblical time period that this first part of 1 Samuel takes place in, it's called the period of the judges. And in the period of the judges, if you were to go, if you were to go home and read the book of Judges, you'll see that Israel's kind of like in this downward spiral where the people, uh, they sin against God, and eventually they lament because of their suffering, and then God gives them a deliverer to deliver them out of the situation, a person who's going to point them back to the word of God, but, but that only lasts a certain period of time. And so we see that going on here, right? They turn back to God, but that only lasts a certain period of time. If you look there in chapter 8, verse 1, you see here now Samuel's old. When Samuel became old. So the, the author of 1 Samuel is letting us know that a long time has taken place. Decades have gone on and we are anticipating That something is not going to go on well. Let's continue reading here. It doesn't go well. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Now, here's the bad part. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, we got to wonder here, we're not quite sure what exactly Samuel is doing in terms of, did he know his son's sins before he put them into their office? The passage doesn't really quite say. You know, if you look at the end of chapter 7, it says here that, that uh, in 17 that Samuel would go around to these different places and kind of make this circuit of where he would exercise judgment and lead the people pointing them back to the word beersheba is actually far away from the circuit that he goes to so maybe i don't know maybe he installs them and then he finds out that they're taking bribes and perverting justice it's not entirely clear i mean maybe samuel might have added to the problem and his sons are not walking in his godly ways they take bribes and they are perverting god's justice you guys recall this reminds us a lot actually of Hophni and Phineas from the early chapter of first Samuel apparently they're not so much in a greater position than where they were before apparently but we do know that because of Samuel the word of the Lord is going but yet there's sin this is just kind of the reality of living in a sinful world the reality of living in the period of the judges but anyways here we have a repeat just in the next generation Samuel's sons are a lot like Eli's sons. They are perverting justice, taking bribes. And it appears, at least in the beginning, that the people of Israel, look there, they recognize that this corruption was a bad thing. Look there at verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Thanks, guys. You are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now that sounds good. But in actuality, their cry, right, against injustice seems to be like a smokescreen to their real reason for wanting a king. Right? You see, the real reason is held back all the way until the end. There's actually three reasons there. The first objection for why they don't want Samuel is that you are old. 
The second one, right? Your sons aren't like you. That is, they are, they don't walk in your, in your ways. We hope that they're talking about godliness as opposed to, let's say, efficiency of judging the nation or whatever. Uh, but then the real reason comes after their request. The request is they uh, appoint us a king to judge us. And their judge doesn't only mean executing justice. It also means guiding, leading. The real reason, though, there is that they might be like all the nations. So right there, I think their real concern is exposed. I'm not saying that they did. They had no concern for justice, but according to their passage, as we continue to read, their concern for justice fades really quickly into the background. And their desire to fit in, like all the other nations, surfaces all the more. Right here, they want to fit in with the world, it seems. And, and you see that, right, this Samuel being old. We're going to see how the very first king is actually a strapping man, a very tall man, a very good-looking man, just like the world's ideas of leadership and beauty and strength right they're going to follow after that kind of king it's interesting right they seem to be they seem to have adopted the world's understanding and they want to fit in with the world it's right there specifically the desire comes out in this ultra practical request give us a king like all the other nations uh now it might seem like a good thing to have a king over them right they need a leader people are perverting justice but the problem is that they already have a king over them. That is the Lord who is king over them. And we see that actually in Judges, where the people ask Gideon to rule over us, basically be a king over us. He says, no, the the Lord will rule over you. The Lord and his appointed judges, those were the folks who were to lead and to govern the people. And God had been doing this up to this point. God had determined that at a certain point in time, he would bring along a judge to deliver the nation. So God had been doing that. And here Israel seems to be very impatient. Uh, So having the Lord as their king, having the Lord as their king is what made the Israelites distinct among the nations. It's really important to notice that having the Lord over them as king is what made the Israelites distinct among the nations. So if you are new to the the Bible, new to the Old Testament, you're not a Christian, you're exploring what this is is about. It's important to know why God formed Israel into a nation in the first place. If we're going to understand why they were to be distinct, why the Lord wanted uh, himself to rule over the nations. And this goes actually all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And we see there that God had made man to be in a relationship with him in a perfect relationship, but man had sinned against him. And when man had sinned against God, man had man plunged uh, themselves and everybody in their line into darkness. And their justice was perverted. You see murder taking place even in, you know, Genesis chapter four in the very beginning. And then you and then it's, this things kind of go on and on. and on. You see sexual immorality. You see wars breaking out there. Sin enters into the world and therefore man is plunged into darkness. All man is given to sin. And we see this on the news. We see this in our very own hearts. But at that moment. When, when man had sinned, God in his grace was already moving to save. And so what he does, even though man was plunged into darkness, God, by his grace, even though he could have condemned all of the people who had rebelled against him, drew near to some. He drew near to Abraham. And from Abraham, he gave Abraham the charge. Look, I want you 
to become a nation. He says, from you, you eventually, as you adopt me as your Lord, as you live underneath my law, and as you live according to my grace and according to my mercy and my steadfast love, you then will become the people that I designed you to be. And so, so God, the Lord is forming them into a nation here. And the Lord and his righteousness was to be, was to rule them and was to govern them. And as the people believed on the Lord, they showed to the world what it looked like to have that Lord over them, his goodness over them, his holiness and righteousness and justice over them. They showed the rest of the world that was in darkness what it looked like to have a loving king over them. And they showed the world what it looked like to trust in their maker, to live according to his good law. Friends, the same is uh, the same is true today in the New Testament church for us today. In the church, we possess joy in Jesus Christ. Because Christ has loved us, we therefore live according to a different ethic. We can forgive one another. We can love one another. And so there are visitors. I want you guys to know, church, and be encouraged. I want you to know there are visitors who come to our church and they remark how our church is. They're struck by the love that they see in the church. They're struck by how welcome they feel in the church. And I was having some conversations <clears throat> with uh, a couple people, and they were saying that the friend that they bought, you know, first brought, first when they walked in, they they were, you know, a bit, uh, their guards were up. You know, they're wondering why is so many people asking so much, so many questions about us, like how you came to the church, how we came to the church, and things like this, and what we do, and, and you know how we're doing. And eventually, after they got the picture that kind of everybody that they had met that day, at least the people that they had mentioned. Uh, were kind and loving, their barriers started to come down, right? They aren't Christians, but they come into the church and they experience this community is different. As far as I know, they don't believe in Jesus, but they can appreciate the things that they see here. So guys, I want you to be encouraged here. That's what's supposed to go on in Old Testament Israel. They're supposed to display God's glory to the watching world, what it looks like to have that king, that Lord, over them ruling in their lives. And all this brings glory to God. Whether it be for Israel, as he had adopted them as a nation, or whether it be for us, as he adopts us as his children, we bear the image of God to the rest of the world so that they might watch. And as we believe on him and trust in him, we begin to love like him and care like he does. And the nations, therefore, are to watch and wonder. They're supposed to be curious. They're supposed to ask questions. They're supposed to even desire to have that same ethic. And if God wills, to desire that same Lord. I think we see this in regular relationships today. Some of you guys might have come from uh, difficult families. And, uh, you know, you might pop into the strange family that's still together with the parents, you know, even though they might not be perfect, they're still together seeking to love one another. <clears throat> Maybe you came from a background where what marks your family is abuse and difficulty, suspicion, divorce, lawsuits, all these types of things. You're, you're, maybe you came from a family where you, you can't trust them. And then you go to your friend's family and you're like, this is different. And then all of a sudden you want to move in, right? I've had other, my old, old friends want to do that in our family. They want to move into our family, move, live into our house because it's so, it's different from what they observe in the past. 
in their own family. And so you can think about it this way. God's people were to be the envy of the nations. God's people were to be the envy of the nations in a good way, longing for that Lord, that trust, that love to reign in the family. God's people were designed to display his glory as God himself had taken them to be a kingdom of priests, right? Holy people who love reconciliation with God. God had taken his people to be a holy nation, to love all the good things that God loves, to love righteousness and justice, forgiveness, all these types of things. And they were to be set apart for the service of their divine king. Friends, but somewhere in the path, as we think about 1 Samuel 8, somewhere along the path here, the envy of the nations ended up envying the nations. This is their desire. Look there in verse 5. You see this once again. Uh, Behold, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us the king to judge us like all the, the nations. And then you go to the end of the chapter, right? In verse 20. Well, let's just start in 19. Uh, after Samuel tells them and warns them of all the dangers of taking for themselves an earthly king like all the other nations, he says there, it says there, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also that we also may be like all the nations. That's their desire right here. They fit in. They're envying the nations here. Their desire for an earthly king, they reject the divine king. This is their impeachment of God. They hold a so-called kangaroo court. They judge God. They lay their indictments against him and they find him guilty and they abandon their holy king. And we see this so much more in the words and we feel it there. They want to be like the nations. You know what the word nation means there? It can be translated there. Gentiles. So God's special people, all of a sudden, with the Lord over them, they want to set aside all that makes them distinct. The Lord is king over them and all of his rule and his reign and pursue being like the Gentiles who are reigned by pagan men and who worship pagan gods. The people who are to be distinct in the world want to be like the world. Why do they do this? Why, why do they do this? It's strange, right? But you see their national agenda. You see their national business plan, so to speak. Their vision was not to be a kingdom of priests, right? They had other issues that were of higher priority. You look in verse 20 once again, and we see their agenda, their business plan. That we may also, that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They were more concerned with being a kingdom of warriors as opposed to a kingdom of priests who labor for reconciliation and point people to God and be a display of his glory. They want to defeat and survive here on earth. And that seems to really be what's at the top of their agenda. They want a king to go out before us and fight our battles. They want the sharpest, the strongest, the most resilient tip of the spear. Imagine them. Imagine what this is like. Right, last week we talked about fear of missing out here. I think to some degree they're wrestling with the same thing. Imagine them from their own little kingdom with old, old Samuel leading them, looking out into the horizon. And they are fixed in fear, looking at the nation's strong and wealthy kings in all their splendor, their kingdoms in all their splendor, envying the nations. They must have felt in light of the Canaanites around them, in light of the Philistines there, 
They must have felt that their kingdom was as secure as a cardboard box. They are sitting on their play school playpen looking over there to see the mansions, the riches, the wealth and the strength, the wisdom of the world. And so they adopt it. They think in the moment what is outside is better than what they have. In short, they were living by sight and not by faith in the Lord and his promises. I mean, if they were living by faith, if they were living by faith and in the Lord's promises, you would figure that they would keep the memories, uh, right? The memories and stories of Egypt and what the Lord had done to Egypt and the Egyptians close to their heart. Where the Lord not only formed them into the people, but brought them safely through the Red Sea and eventually into the land of Canaan, fulfilling his promises all by his power. We would figure that they would keep that close to their heart. And no matter how small they might feel in light of all the, the riches and the wealth and the strength and the power and the threats of the nations around them, that they would be so secure. You would figure that if they were living by faith, they would keep all the stories in the history of how God delivered Joshua and Israel time and time again out of the hands of their enemies and how the Lord fought for them. And how the Lord was fulfilling all of his promises by his own power. Or more recently in the book of 1 Samuel, how they would keep those stories close to them about how God's ark went around on that parade to all of the nations there in the Philistines and God, despite his people's sins, despite the fact that his people had abandoned him, that the Lord brought victory over the Philistines. And friends, they were witnesses of these things, that God would fight for them and win by his own power. But this request for a king over them, like all the other nations, reveals that, uh, reveals that they doubt, that they fear. It reflects their anxiety. If they have lived by faith, they'd realize that their battles are not just their battles, but they are the Lord's battles. Never would they be just about their battles. But as they stare at the horizon, they live by sight in fear of the Philistines and in fear of the Canaanites. Apparently to them, God only had the plan to bring them into the land. God only had promised and pledged that he would do this, but he lacked power. And so his presence brought them no comfort. In fact, maybe we could even go on to say that his presence brought fear. And so the people opt for a new king. Look at verses 7 to 9. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. You know, sadly, what the Israelites do is not very surprising to us, is it? We too have our own fears about all that rises on the horizon. The prospect of joblessness for some. For others, maybe not being able to pay the bills. For others still, maybe a life of singleness before you. Maybe a life of childlessness before you. Maybe a life for the remaining decades that you have, a life of ill health, suffering. Maybe a spouse who seems not to care about you. 
Maybe the idea of having your children remain wayward for the rest of your lives, maybe falling, maybe failing as a parent. And in, the, in, in those prospects, all that rises on your horizon that you right now are concerned about, worried about, anxious about, right? you know that worry and anxiety strike your heart so deeply. And it's in those moments that we are tempted to live by sight and not by faith. In those moments, we turn our heads to, and see the supposed strength of our own non-Christian neighbors who do not have the sovereign Lord over them, and we see the supposed fortresses that they have built for themselves, their apparent security according to their own wisdom, and we start to think that we are the ones who are missing out. We see people driving the nice cars, owning owning the nice homes, posting pictures of their nice, healthy bodies, And so in the fear and uncertainty and insecurity, we turn to the world's so-called kings and we want them to rule over us. We pray that they would rule over us so that they might deliver us from the thing that rises on our horizon. That's living by sight and not by faith. But living by faith, if we did that, we would know that no matter the situation, no matter what rises on the horizon, we would know without a shadow of a doubt that God is our helper. As Psalm 54 verse 4 says, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. But in the struggle, we might be really wrestling with whatever it is that we're wrestling with. And we open up the Bible to Psalm 54 verse 4 and it says, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my upholder of my life. And then we say, and so is health. God is my helper but so is that Ferrari that gives me identity. The Lord is the upholder of my life, but man, I would certainly feel good and rejuvenated for the rest of my life if I just had a girlfriend or a boyfriend or more money or more health or healthier children or restored relationships. Friends, how do you feel that God is doing in upholding your life in every single aspect of your life? What are you disappointed in right now? Is God still your helper? I think it reveals that when we frankly go into this room, you know, last week we talked about the rooms uh, that we partition and we set up certain gods over the mantles of certain rooms. You know, it might be the God of pleasure, which might be us or the God of, you know, medical uh, health or whatever it is. You know, sometimes we walk into these rooms, uh, and if we think that God is not helping us, that he has abandoned us in the circumstance, you know, I think it reveals that we fixed onto getting that one particular thing. And we therefore forget that, forget everything else. We miss out on the big picture, who God is, even in the midst of trials and temptations. We forget in so many different ways that God loves us and that he can be trusted. And really, we act like infants. We act like teenagers. We act like junior hires. I don't know how many times, you know, I might have asked my parents to buy me that one particular thing. And if they didn't buy me that one particular thing, you know, I might get angry. I might throw a fit. I might get angry. But I forget that they have given me a place to live, 
I forget that they have, they, my mom would dedicate herself to making us these marvelous meals. I would forget that they were raising us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I would forget that they would encourage us in so many different ways, but they didn't buy me those shoes. And I would think if I go into the room of identity or materialism, and if just because they are choosing not to do that, I therefore would think that they are not my helpers. How short-sighted. That's such narrow vision right there. We don't understand that it may be their wisdom is greater than our own. Maybe through their own life experiences and through their own knowledge, they know better than we do. Friends, God's plan may not be to give you the results that you desire, but we can nevertheless trust in the Lord. God loves us. And he can be trusted. He is the one that has infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge and knows exactly where you guys are going. And that is informed by his infinite love. That is so much of where the lesson is here. That our battles where we might feel that God had abandoned us are never just our battles. Where we might think we are floundering and fighting alone. But friends, it's in those battles that the Lord meets us to fight them. And it's where we learn that we might lean on him in faith. Of course, he's not my, he might not give us the results that we desire, but he will be with us as a good father does. And in doing so, Christian, as we latch on to him by faith, we show the world what it looks like to trust in a good and loving God, no matter the battles that we do face. I read just this morning uh, on persecution.org, it's a great uh, website to go to if, you're, if you want to get sort of a global perspective on Christianity. And I was reading today that one pastor named Pastor Abraham, he was uh, deathly afraid of the ISIS folks around him, <clears throat> the terrorists around him. And uh, he knew that there was one who, was, who wanted to kill him, right? That's fear. And as this guy was approaching his house... The only thing Abraham knew that he could do was trust in the Lord. And it's when he trusted in the Lord that his fears went away. And in the moment, he just said, okay, you know what? I, my whole entire life is the Lord. So what I'm going to say to him is that this person, you ISIS terrorist fighter, you need to know that there is forgiveness of the Lord and that you are following Satan. And that's what he told him. And then the guy, the, the terrorist fighter, he repented of his sins and with great quakes and trembling of repentance and sorrow, he becomes a Christian and months later he actually got baptized and now is sharing the gospel in the refugee camp that he lives in. And all of that took place when Abraham gave up his fear and recognized, yeah, okay, it might not have the immediate results that I want of a life lived in comfort and without fear, but nevertheless, the Lord met him there and showed him extra grace that he then was used to bring somebody who was hostile to God to actually know God and to know the forgiveness of sins. We show that God can be trusted and that Christ is enough. Even in the face of all those things that rise up on the horizon, when we believe on him, we show that Christ is enough. We're not saying that those fears are not real. Even in the midst of those fears, though, Christ is enough. His wisdom can still be trusted. His law can still be embraced and appreciated. And his presence can be longed for and loved. We see this in Jesus Christ in his example. In his greatest need before the crucifixion, he is praying to the Father. 
Did the father finally abandon him to death? The answer is no, but the father raised him from the dead. God, his own father, was with him in his suffering. For us, it's encouraging as well that just as God did not finally abandon Jesus Christ, so he does not abandon those who are in Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Christ is not ashamed to call those who turn to him brothers. And so as the father looks upon those whom his son has died for, he, he sees them as his children. Those he adopts, he never abandons. What a wonderful Lord to submit to. One who will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we, friends, are never alone. Our battles are never just our battles. But the Lord meets us in them. You look there in verse 9. Going back to the chapter here, verse 9 of chapter 8. God tells Samuel to do what the people want. Look at verse 9. I'll go ahead and read that. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. We might wonder why God tells Samuel to obey the Israelites, especially since God tells them that what what they are doing is described as forsaking God. So why does God tell Samuel to listen to them? Well, in Scripture, God oftentimes uses uh, or teaches his people by giving them what they ask for. God in Scripture oftentimes uh, teaches his people, and even non-Christians, he teaches them by giving them what they ask for as a means of discipline. That's kind of what's going on here. They ask for an earthly king in order to be like the nations around them. And so God says, okay. But it's not without warning. God still uses Samuel as his instrument as a prophet to bring God's word to the people. And this here is wonderful evidence that God has not abandoned them. He's given them Samuel after all, right? To warn them about the ways of their king that they're going to have. The consequences of having their king. Look at 10 to 17. I'll go ahead and read that. These, These are the consequences, the ways of the king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war, the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Here we see very clearly that these are the consequences of having this king over them. Scholars note that compared to the people around them, here the writing is very typical of the day and the actions are very typical of the ancient kings. But what should have sounded alarm is everything that the king would take. That's the repetition here. He's going to take what's of theirs and make them his. So basically he's saying that Israel would no longer be comfortable to a certain degree, but instead they would actually suffer. So in taking for themselves a king, the king in turn would take from them. You see there, this idea, right? He's going to even implement this idea. He's going to take not only the people, the women who were typically, uh, you know, safe 
Instead, they're going to be taken away from their homes and go, they're going to go to his home. Right? They're going to take it to be the perfumers, the cooks, and the bakers. He's going to implement a tax. He's going to take the best of their fields and use them for him. He's going to take the best men and take them away from their homes. And eventually, where does this lead them? In many ways, it's back to Egypt. He says there, you shall be his slaves. And then the next verse there, in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. We see the consequences. What is astounding is that the people refuse to listen. With their hard hearts, they refuse to listen. <clears throat> you look there in uh, 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his own city. Here with their hard hearts, God gives them over to their desires. And the scripture goes on to speak how Israel's own kings did in fact do what is said here. 1 Kings 12.4 speaks of Solomon's heavy yoke upon his own people. So much so that the people, you know, they, they cry out. They don't appreciate it. They want out of it. <clears throat> but their obstinance, Israelites' obstinance is very much like us, isn't it? Even in our illogical fears, we insist on taking care of things our own way. They are our battles, and we want our desired outcomes according to our own solutions. And we insist on abandoning God's ways. What's interesting to note here is that uh, sin or abandoning God, choosing to sin, is oftentimes the illogical choice. You guys ever experienced that? When you are tempted to sin, you find yourself giving in, you recognize that you've fallen. Sin is oftentimes the illogical, illogical choice. They have divine knowledge of what's going to happen. They have divine knowledge. They have divine foreknowledge. Samuel, as a prophet of God, is speaking to them, warning them, giving them God's wisdom. But they say, no. That's when you really know that your desired outcomes have already become a functional idol. We want what we want, no matter what God says. For the Israelites, I think it was strength. I think it was power. It was security, according to their own definitions. And here God chooses to let Israel learn in warning, but also through experience. This is applicable to us Christians. He knows that our hearts are sometimes hard to his wisdom. Or our hearts are prone to sin. And so he lets us have our own way so we might learn. So we might taste, right, the bitterness of sin and to be reminded of what, is, what it was like to be enslaved to it. And in the process, in fighting for our desired outcomes, according to our own solutions, we see, we learn just how much confidence to put in human wisdom. And we learn that human wisdom may offer confidence for a moment, but it is false confidence. Getting a king, right, sounds good at the moment, but in the end, it enslaves them. Isn't that just like sin? Don't you guys know that from your own personal experience? It is good for the eyes, as Adam and Eve thought. It is something to be desired. It is something to make one wise, but in the end, friend, it 
brings death. If you want to be reminded of this, you can read uh, Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. You can read the whole book, but especially chapters 1 to 9, where it says, it speaks of godly wisdom, and then it speaks of worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom is spoken of as being like the woman, the loose woman, the prostitute, whose lips flow with honey, with smooth words, who uses everything about her, even her eyes and her eyelashes in some Proverbs, to capture and to enslave. And then, obviously, we know the outcome of what's going to happen, right? For those of us who are Christians who actually stop and think about the consequence of sin. In, uh, in one proverb, it, Solomon says... You can't play with fire and not get burned. He says, look, if you go to the worldly wisdom, it's like going to a prostitute. It is like heaping fiery coals on your crotch. That's how explicit it is. And there Solomon helps us understand you will get burned. It's good for the eyes. It is something to be desired, something to make one wise. But in the end, we leave it leaves us enslaved if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a christian maybe you find yourself here already having given yourself to sin maybe you are here and you already feel what it's like to be enslaved what once promised so much has left you as you sit in those pews disappointed lost and unfulfilled friend i hope you see that that is the lord your creator helping you learn by experience. I know it's difficult to learn from experience because, you know, who wants to admit that they are disappointed? Who wants to admit that they are discouraged, lost, and unfulfilled? That's all the stuff that the world tells you to pretend you're not dealing with. But our experience is nevertheless one way that God helps us see the reality of sin, to turn away from what we have been hoping in, and to turn back to Him who is our true help. Right? So you are learning from experience. And not only are you to learn from experience, you also are to learn from the Word. So it's no mistake that you sit here disappointed while you are hearing the Word. That is godly wisdom. And I hope that from even this passage, you are reminded of the fact that sin is not always what it appears to be. Following your own wisdom as opposed to God is not always what it appears to be. Let me encourage you to seek out other people around you, your next door neighbors who are sitting there in the pews right next to you, and to ask them various questions about how hoping in the Lord has turned out better than hoping in sin. Not only does, the, does God want you to learn from experience, He wants you to learn from His Word. Friend, we are designed to depend on God our Creator and to live according to His wisdom. And I hope you see this displayed in those of us who are Christians. Now, we too are still tempted to live according to our own wisdom, where our own hearts uh, can oftentimes be hard. But yet God still helps us learn by experience, tasting the bitterness of sin. And then we turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for help. Again, if you are visiting with us, let me encourage you to ask the friend who brought you how and why sin seemed so promising. But in the end, sin ditched and deserted your friend. Ask them that specifically. Ask them about the emptiness they felt chasing meaning in relationships. Now here, let me just say, I'm going to go through a list of, of, of uh, sins that I know we all struggle with. People here struggle with, and I'm going to do this in order, not with names, but in order that you, non-Christian, might say, yes, we too struggle with the very things you are wrestling with. Ask your friends, 
Christian friends about the emptiness they felt chasing meaning in relationships. Ask your friend about the emptiness that they felt chasing drugs. Anger, revenge, sexual immorality, morality, good grades, riches, significance, control, respect from their peers, the praise of men. Friends, that is us. People who at who one time longed to have these so-called kings ruling over us. We who desire to serve these masters, but we, by God's grace, have found them to be very harsh. They have been lords who took from us so many years, so much energy. Lords who demanded that we stay awake at night, thinking, plotting, regretting, living in fear. But by the grace of God, the one true Lord has delivered us from all those false kings. And instead of taking the best from his subjects, the Lord Jesus Christ provided himself for his subjects. I mean, what a good king to live for. for. This king who came to help us see our greatest need, that is salvation, and to save us from our biggest problem, that is sin and our rebellion against God. That's our biggest problem that loomed on the horizon. Sin had so affected our lives that we found fear. We found so many other things to fear when we had rejected the one true king and didn't care anything about it. God even helps us see our own greatest need. To paraphrase one author, if God had perceived that our greatest need was financial, now as I read through this list, keep in mind of all the things that you are fearing that could arise on the horizon. If God had perceived that our greatest need was financial, he would have sent us a financial advisor. If he had perceived that our greatest need was to be entertained, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist, a filmmaker. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. What a good king to live under. One who sees our need. We had rebelled against God. We had rejected him as king. We had grabbed anything else that was out there to be king over us and earn for ourselves judgment. But God had sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. This great king provided himself for his subjects. He didn't take from his subjects that all the earthly so-called kings would do but instead he would live a perfect life for his subjects. He would die on the cross bearing the wrath that we ourselves deserved, the death that we deserved. He did that for his subjects. He tasted death for his subjects. He was raised to new life, showing all, showing the entire world that payment was accepted in full. He did that for his subjects. And he even lives to intercede right now for his subjects. This is the Lord that we live for. He is the Lord that we can trust. He is the Lord who is with us. Friends, you can have a restored relationship with that creator if you would repent of your sins and believe on him. Take the king that you have found that has left you deserted, disappointed, and you bring your disappointment to the one true king who finally satisfies, who forgives, who offers full pardon for your sin. If you would repent and believe on him. Friends, salvation is by grace through faith. Your earthly king right now, 
might have you still laboring for him. And you will find out, if not now, then later, that your master is a harsh one and that you will never be saved by works trying to please the various kings that are out there. If you are still exploring, let me encourage you again. Ask your friend about what it's like to live underneath this king, to submit pleasure and everything else underneath this king. How he is known. Ask them how he is known for providing and not taking. As the Bible says in Mark 10, 45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for many. As we walk through this passage, we see so clearly that the people have wandered away from God, just as we have, just as we do. But isn't it great, marvelous, in his steadfast love that Christ never abandons his people? Even though chapter 8 ends on a disciplinary note, right? He's giving them over to their desires so that they might learn. We were, we were reminded that God is faithful even in teaching them through experience and with his word. In their desire for an earthly king, God would use their desires and even the failures of their future kings to point to the one true king, that is King Jesus. He who was no ordinary man and certainly no ordinary king. He was the God-man who reigns on the throne forever in perfect justice, justice and righteousness. Isn't God good? Even in the midst of our own sin and in our turnings and wanting things to rule over us, He takes that desire and He points us to the one who rules best, the one who truly rules. To even use the people's fear of missing out to point them to where true satisfaction is found in Christ, the one who does not take, but the one who provides for them eternal life through his own shed blood. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that you alone are king, you alone are ruler. Lord, we pray that you might help expose our sin so that we might, as we saw previously, repent of our sins and turn back to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us know that even in the midst of whatever fears and anxieties we have, we pray that we would be so confident in your great love for us, your steadfast love for sinners. You have helped us see our greatest need. You have given us your very own son. Surely with him you will give us everything else. Lord, we know that you are a God who understands our fears and anxieties. Lord, we pray that you would help us know that, and we pray that you would help us fight to believe that you are a God who is with us in the midst of them. Lord, you know that our fears strike great anxiety in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us in the midst of these things turn back to Christ and be finally satisfied in all of your wisdom and all of your knowledge and all of your great care. We pray, Lord, that you would help us see you and know that you satisfy, and not, and not in any change of circumstance. At the same time, Lord, we pray that you would help us trust in your promises and how one day you will deliver us from this world. And all of our desires will be answered as we experience true and final reign under you, our good, loyal, faithful, kind King. We pray, Lord, that your reign would rule over us even right now. And we would so appreciate everything you've given us in your love and in your Son. Father, we pray that you would help us know that in Christ there is full 
satisfaction. In your name we pray. Amen.